Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. He was going to be convicted to an almost absolute certainty if he didn't take the stand. He probably is still going to be convicted, but it's the, that establishing a rapport with the jury probably was his only chance. Whether it plays or not, I'm skeptical. Welcome back to the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. I'm your host, Kelly O'Grady, from over at Fox Business. So folks, we have reached the most critical moment of this trial. Sam Bankman-Fried is on the stand testifying in his own defense. And thus far, we've seen two sides of the former crypto king really over the past couple of days in court. You know, he's being questioned by the defense first. Right then he came across as confident, direct, calm probably rehearsed, right, as one would expect. And he painted a picture of an entrepreneur who simply wanted to make the industry better, but just didn't have a ton of experience. He actually said at one point he knew, quote, basically nothing about crypto when getting into the industry. And he even admitted his biggest mistake was that FTX had no risk management team. I'm sure the SEC was listening to that statement. Much of the blame he's trying to punt to his lieutenants, Caroline Ellison, Gary Wong, Nishad Singh. We've, of course, referenced them all before on our podcast. And he argued they didn't keep him informed enough about the dire financial situation that was unfolding and that they committed fraud without his knowledge. So far, it's basically been he said, they said. And with that inner circle having already pled guilty to fraud, will the jury buy that he knew nothing as the CEO? The prosecution, though, they got their crack at him. They started today. And another side of SBF is emerging here. One, frankly, with a bit of memory loss. Countless times the prosecution has asked SBF to confirm that he said something in an interview or wrote something in an email. His responses, for the most part, have been, quote, I can't remember or, quote, I can't recall. In a brutal line of questioning, Assistant U.S. Attorney uh, Daniel Sassoon, she repeatedly flashed up tweets and emails, played audio recordings, confirming SBF did indeed say the things in question. Now, of course, not remembering what you said isn't a crime. And in fact, it, it can be a pretty effective way to avoid incriminating oneself. But how does that switch play with the jury? So here to break it all down is Cornell Law Professor William Jacobson. He is the director of the Securities Law Clinic there. He's litigated many high-profile cases, so I'm eager to get his take on how SBF is faring on the stand thus far. So Professor Jacobson, welcome. Thanks for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me on. So right off the bat, I want to get your reaction to him taking the stand, because there was a lot of questions about whether he would. Is this a Hail Mary? In your opinion, was this smart to to actually get on the stand and open yourself up to this questioning that we're seeing from the prosecution? Well, I know a lot of criminal defense lawyers would say that somebody in his position should not take the stand. He's only going to make his situation worse. On the other hand, 
he was going to get convicted if he didn't take the stand, if he couldn't somehow portray himself as a victim of circumstance, a victim of other people. He's going to be convicted. So you, you don't know whether it works until you find out whether it works. But I could certainly understand why somebody in his position would think this is his only way out. Because even if he's con if he were convicted, no matter what his personal circumstances, no matter what his contrition about what he did, he's going away for tens of years. So I think he just rolled the dice, which is pretty much what he did at FTX. <laughs> Fair point, right? Uh, you know, so you talked about, though, that this was his, his opportunity to paint a picture, you know, paint a, or, or share his side of the story. So I do want to dive into a little bit of what we learned when the defense was questioning him first. So he, he kind of painted himself as this entrepreneur and innovator who saw a need in the market, cobbled together a team, but wasn't an expert himself. So it was very much, you know, hey, we're flying the plane while building it, uh, which reminds me a little bit sometimes of defenses you've seen in the Elizabeth Holmes case and, and other cases where you have some kind of a, a startup and a new company on the block. In your experience, does that, hey, I, I just got over my skis, does that defense work? I don't think so, because the question is, did he tell investors, hey, we're building this plane while we're flying it? Chances are not. And I think that was, at least from what I'm able to read online, a part of the questioning by the prosecutors in cross-examination, which is that, that that narrative is inconsistent with everything he said for a number of years publicly. So I think that's the problem with it, is that did he say to people, give me your money. I have no idea what I'm doing. We have no risk management team, and I'm just you know, building this as we fly it. Did he say that? No, that's not what he said. And I think that's what the prosecution has been pointing out. And so that's the problem with that sort of defense. It's an interesting point that you make because it, it is a, a fine line. I've, I've worked on the other side of investments where entrepreneurs will pitch their, you know, their idea, right? And, and really at that point, in many cases, it's a sales pitch. It's trying to get someone to believe, hey, this is going to work. And you're kind of trying to downplay the risks, uh, upplay the the reward that the, the investor could get from it. But to your point, there is that line where you could potentially cross where you're lying versus painting the most optimistic future of what something could look like. You mentioned the risk management team, though, which which to me was was such a moment for any civil suit that could come in the future. And, and certainly there are going to be many. But he basically said, you know, uh, it left FTX with no oversight that his biggest regret was not having that risk management team. You are an expert in securities law. You know, I imagine the SEC was perking up when they heard that to use in the upcoming civil trial against him. Well, I'm sure they were, but his concern as a person is not spending the rest of his life in jail, as opposed to having a big judgment against you that you're not going to be able to pay anyway. So I think that Fair that point. line, again, may expose him to civil liability. But at this point, if you're him, if you're Sam Bankman-Fried, what do you care? That's tomorrow. That's a year from now. That's down the road. You've got to avoid a, a 20 or 30 or 40 year prison sentence in federal court where you don't get time off for good behavior. So I think that's really 
his focus. And if so, I doubt that he's really thinking much about civil lawsuits. Mm. Well, I guess to your point, we don't have debtors prison uh, in this country so that he's he's tackling the problem at hand. Um, you know, he, he spent a lot of time on the stand refuting the testimony from inner circle members. And we've talked a lot about it on on the podcast already that Nishad Singh, Caroline Ellison, Gary Wong, they all are saying, hey, Sam Bankman-Fried was directly in charge of everything. He told us to commit this fraud. He told us to donate to politicians in our names. And it's really coming from him, all sorts of things. Um, There was one moment in particular that both uh, sides of the coin recounted where SBF asked Wong and Singh to fix an account on FTX that kept going negative. So essentially having a balance that was less than zero, which normally wasn't allowed on the platform. Now Singh and, and Wong testified that SBF directed them to build something in the code that allowed the account to exist without that red flag. So it, it could essentially continue to go negative without setting off any alarm bells. They say he told us to do this. SBF testified that they simply told him the situation was fixed and he wasn't aware of the solution. And so these recountings of conversations, like I said before, it's it's very he said, they said. How does this play in your experience with a jury when there isn't that smoking gun, there isn't that screenshot of a text message or a spreadsheet or something, and it really is one person's word against another, or in this case, a few? Well, I think that's clearly the gamble he's taking, which is that they go back into the jury room, they read the instruction on proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and they say, we don't know who's telling the truth. And therefore, that's not guilty. We think he maybe did it. So I think that's his gamble here. That's his his ploy is to so confuse things and create it so that it's one person's word against another. But at least from what I've been reading, the prosecution may not have the smoking gun, but they've got a lot of guns that are pretty hot and they've got a lot of evidence against him. And they have testimony by people who, while they have... Uh, pled guilty there, I assume it came out on their testimony as it normally did, is part of their plea deal is they have to tell the truth when they testify. And if they don't tell the truth, their plea deal gets thrown out. So these are people you know, who, while you could paint them as tailoring their story to get him because they got a plea, they have a lot to lose if they're proven wrong. So I think that I would be surprised if he walks on this, but clearly his goal was to establish a rapport with the jury, to get the jury maybe a little bit confused, to get the jury to have sympathy for him as a victim of all these people who are around him, and with the instruction on proof beyond a reasonable doubt, to find not guilty. I'd be shocked if that happened, but that's the only hope he has. And it only takes one to hang a jury, right? You know, it only takes one person to, in the room, put themselves in in his shoes maybe maybe you get someone who started a company before and you know has has had those moments of oh gosh you know every everything's spinning out of control he does put a lot of blame in his testimony on on caroline ellison and of course her entire testimony was was throwing him under the bus um 
But there was this one part that came up about how she ignored his advice as CEO of Alameda Research, the the trading fund, or rather the, the hedge fund. Um, she ignored his advice to hedge when the crypto market started to tank. And in her testimony, she even brought up a list titled Things Sam is Freaking Out About. And there were a number of things on there, but hedging was one of them. So, you know, he's talking about, oh, this was all her fault. Everything went to, to um, you know, crashing down because she didn't hedge. And it sort of comports with the fact that she identified that he had been telling her all along that, okay, we need to hedge this risk. You know, we need to do this. Um, that kind of, for me, seemed a bit of a win for the defense there, that they were able to tease out and corroborate that even in her own story. Uh, what are your thoughts on that moment? Well, assuming it went down as well for him as, as you described, then that's a win for him. But what does that really have to do with the charges against him? I mean, he's charged with fraud. Uh, part of the fraud is concealment to the investors and uh, essentially mismanagement and uh, self-dealing with regard to the funds. So yes, others may have done something wrong, but that doesn't necessarily excuse all the things he did wrong. You know, this is, in my view, just assuming the allegations are true, this is really not a super complicated case. This is a Ponzi scheme case. This is a Ponzi scheme using a complicated product, a complicated financial product and a complicated financial setup. But at the end of the day, the prosecution is simply, is mostly alleging that he defrauded people uh, to self-help and to enrich himself by not being truthful with them. So I think that the fact that there might've been one other person or two other people who made mistakes along the way, I don't think is an excuse for him, but it's all he's got to go with. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Well, it's, it's interesting that you bring up the Ponzi scheme comparison because he, he has, of course, been compared a fair amount to Bernie Madoff and, of course, that monumental fraud back years ago. Um, you know, and there's been a lot of argument that, well, even though this is crypto and it's complicated, fraud is fraud. You know, that's really it's really not that complicated in this case. I, I don't know if the, the prosecution has proven, as it would in, in a Ponzi scheme, that the intent to create this was there from the beginning. But I'm certainly starting to see threads where, you know, as things were unraveling before that November crash, he was sharing with uh, investors, you know, in, in June, in July, etc., a couple of months before, things that he potentially knew were untrue, at least based on the testimony of his inner circle. In your experience, though, I mean, when something like a crypto case or, or sort of a very complicated financial uh, system is brought forth, is there the 
the risk that you confuse the jury or the risk that the defense makes it so confusing because there's this sort of nebulous system that the jury has to wrap their minds around. Because that's something that I've I've been a little bit wary of as I'm reading the transcripts and have sat in the courtroom, that there are moments where all these little pieces are being called out, but it's almost like you, you may miss the overall picture through the weeds. You know, what's been your experience in more complicated financial cases uh, like this one? Well, I think in any case, the challenge for a lawyer, particularly a prosecutor who's got the burden of proof, is to put the case in terms that a jury can understand, to put the case in pick your two or three themes and stick with them so that they don't go back into the jury room and say, I have no idea what's going on here. And maybe that leads somebody to vote not to convict. So I think that's the challenge. And I think that's why it's really important to be able to watch and hear the testimony. You're in that position. I'm not in that position. And most people are not in that position. What is the feel in the courtroom? What are the reactions of the jury? Are they staying awake? Are they paying attention? You know, <laughs> those are really factors that you need to be there. If a, a trial were televised, it helps. It doesn't give you the full feel of being in the courtroom, but it gives you a feel. Uh, so I think it's really important that people like you who are in the courtroom, the sense you're getting from it, as opposed to those of us who are reading news reports or hearing about it. But yeah, they, the prosecution has the burden of proof here. They've got to put it into terms that the jury can understand. Yeah, I, I can tell you the jury did not during Sam Bankman-Fried's testimony, but there were different points throughout the trial, and, and most of it has been the prosecution sharing their case. Uh, there have been moments where people looked sleepy, where eyes were starting to flutter, you know, as, as you start to, you know, get, because, you know, you're sitting there hours and hours and hours of testimony, and if it's not your thing like it is mine, and I'm a total nerd about this stuff, seeing spreadsheet after spreadsheet gets kind of boring. But I love that you brought up that point about uh, kind of the feel of everything, because I think so much of of how this plays with the jury is is not necessarily what's said, but um, how it's said. And our producer inside, she she came out today and she shared this bit of color with me. Uh, she said he's answering questions uh, when the prosecution is asking him like a sullen, defiant teenager uh, when the child doesn't want to talk to their parents. And I burst out laughing when she said that to me because it was, it was, you can picture it exactly. Uh, Cause I wasn't able to, to be in there for some of it today, but how much of it is what isn't said in, in your experience, you know, body language, tone of voice, admittedly, none of the witnesses from the prosecution have been particularly compelling, even if the content of what they're saying is is shocking. Um, so how does the attitude he's bringing affect things in, in your perspective? Well, I think that's very important. It's not gonna outweigh the physical evidence, the demonstrative evidence, the emails and the text messages and the other electronic evidence. But do they like him? Does the jury like him? Do they, has he established a rapport with the jury through the questioning? I think those are things you can't get a sense of unless you're in the courtroom. So I think those sort of uh, intangibles are extremely important in any case. I'm not saying they're going to sway the day, 
the jury may say, we like this guy. We maybe even feel sorry for him, but he defrauded people for billions of dollars. So I don't know how far that's going to get him, but clearly he would rather establish a rapport with a jury. He would rather that they like him than have it the other way. So that goes back again to the point that he was going to be convicted to an almost absolute certainty if he didn't take the stand. He probably is still going to be convicted, but it's the, that establishing a rapport with the jury probably was his only chance. Whether it plays or not, I'm skeptical. Uh, it sounds from the reporting that I've read that you know every time he says, well, I don't remember, I don't remember, it's kind of inconsistent with what he was saying at the time. And it's inconsistent with a lot of the rest of his personality, which is supposedly being this super smart person. So I think I, I don't think it's going to play, but it's the only shot he had. So you, you brought up the the I don't remember defense, and it's it's something that I wanted to ask you about. So I'll, I'll touch a little bit on on the prosecution's examination of him, because uh, we got into some of that today before court wrapped. Um, most of the time when he was on the def- uh, or rather on the, desan- the stand and the defense was questioning him, he was very calm, direct, as I said before, and he would actually offer context and specific examples. Judge Kaplan even would admonish him from time to time saying, you know, hey, stay on track. We don't need this extra color, yes or no. Um, so then all of a sudden when the prosecution is asking him questions, and to your point, he's saying, I don't remember, I can't recall. Uh, it was a really stark change for me uh, watching this because I'm going, wow, you know, just a few minutes ago, we saw you very willing to answer questions. Of course, they're probably rehearsed with his, uh, his counsel. Um, but that, that really landed for me of, okay, now we're seeing a very different side of him. Uh, that, that strategy of, I don't know, I don't recall Certainly, he, he, you know, he avoids incriminating himself. But how do you think that 180 lands with the jury? I would be shocked if that works. You know, it's one thing to not recall a few things. We're, we're all like that. We can't remember everything that happened sure. in our life, particularly years ago. But when it's something you would expect him to remember, when it's something he tweeted about or he gave interviews about or sent emails about, Um, or text messages about, you would expect him to remember those things. So, you know, I don't, I assume the prosecution will make a big deal about the I don't remembers in the closing arguments. So their point in the examination and the cross-examination is to get him to say things that they can then use in their closing argument to convince the jury to convict. Remember, you don't get to give your closing statement in the cross-examination. So I can't imagine that strategy is going to pay off for him at the end of the trial, which is when they're giving the closing arguments. Yeah, it was it, honestly, I, I was really impressed with the assistant U.S. attorney, Danielle uh, Sassoon. She had this tough line of questioning where she used all of his media interviews and his tweets as he referenced against him. And we, we were kind of all wondering when this was all going down. We're going, wow, you know, that's it's really bold that he's out there talking to the media so much, tweeting so much. I wonder if this is going to come back to haunt him. And there were so many times where she would ask him a question, you know, hey, do you remember saying, for example, Alameda was treated just like any other FTX customer and he'd say, 
no, I, I can't recall and should play an audio recording from a podcast or should flash up an email. And it, it was just one after another, these, these Perry Mason gotcha moments, if you will, um, that, that felt potentially very powerful for a jury to debunk that, hey, I don't know, line of questioning. But, you know, uh, before I, I let you go, one final question for you, because there's been a tweet that's been referenced a number of times in the prosecution's case, in the defense's case, and it, it's from November 7th. It was right before everything came crashing down. And he tweeted out um, something to the effect of FTX is fine. Assets are fine. Of course, meaning customer assets in this case. Uh, prosecution has said, well, you know, this shows that they he was lying to the public. Uh, because at that point he knew where things stood financially with the company. SBF also used that tweet in his his defense, arguing, well, he really believed that at the time, that he could get customers their money back, so it wasn't a lie. If you play it out, though, he goes and he deletes that tweet a couple of weeks later. And it doesn't exist anymore, but of course, anything you post on the internet, <laughs> they can find. find um, people are finding out and, the hard way about that. <laughs> yes, certainly. We, we all are. Uh, a good lesson to note from this case. And the prosecution asks him about that. Well, you know, why did you delete it if it was true? And, uh, you know, the, the fact that he deleted it, if I put myself in a juror's shoes, I'm going, wow, that feels really shady, very evasive, very concerning. How do you think that played in that moment? Well, sure, the destruction of evidence that's incriminating is even more incriminating than the evidence originally. So the fact that he tried to delete it, he could have explained it away, said, oh, I left it there because at the time I tweeted it, I thought it was true. Well, if that's what you thought, why did you then delete it later on, perhaps not understanding that you know a, a government criminal subpoena to Twitter gets everything you've ever done on Twitter? It probably even gets, I've heard, your drafts, the ones you never sent, which is actually quite frightening. <laughs> so uh, so frightening. <laughs> I, I, I think that the, the, the incriminate, the, the attempt to cover up your crime may not be worse than the crime, but it's worse evidence of the crime than just leaving there to begin with. Yeah, such a great point. Uh, that was my reaction to when this tweet has been brought up a number of times of, well, if it was true, why not just leave it there? You know, uh, I mean, sure, we, we've all deleted things that haven't aged well, or, you know, a post that doesn't get that many likes. I'm certainly guilty of that. But it does, I imagine, lead a juror to question, well, was he already starting to cover his tracks and get ahead of potentially what might be coming now just roughly a year later? Uh, Professor, thank you so much for spending time with us. I really appreciate your insight and just talking us through how all of these moments are are playing potentially for the jury. It won't be long now uh, before we find out. So thank you so much for your time today. Great. Thanks for having me on. All right, folks, that does it for us today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Remember to subscribe and tune into future episodes. We are dropping every Monday and Wednesday. Our breakdown of SBF's testimony will continue on the next episode. We'll get more into how the prosecution is faring in their cross-examination. 
how SBF is faring in his answering of their questions. Uh, and we could even have closing arguments at that point, depending on how quickly this all wraps up. That's all for now. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.